a tax lawyer who enables their clients to enter into tax avoidance schemes is just a bad tax lawyer. Questions of morality are, are a less important question than the fact they're just a bad lawyer. everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm a future trainee solicitor and the host of today's episode. Our guest on the show today is Dan Needle, tax lawyer and commentator who researches and writes on issues of tax law and tax policy and founder of Tax Policy Associates, a non-profit which advises policymakers and journalists on tax policy. However, before launching Tax Policy Associates, Dan spent almost 25 years as a tax lawyer and was head of tax at the London office of one of the largest law firms in the world, Clifford Chance. During his career at Clifford Chance, Dan advised corporates, governments, regulators, central banks and NGOs on tax and tax policy. During this episode, Dan explains the roles and responsibilities of a corporate tax lawyer, reveals the realities of the job, and explains what makes a good and not so good trainee solicitor. Dan also explains the difference between respectably legitimate and lawful tax avoidance schemes and negligent ones, and talks about Uber's and HMRC's dispute over Uber's use of the tour operator's margin scheme. Finally, Dan advises which current affairs aspiring lawyers should keep abreast of whilst preparing for their vacation scheme and training contract interviews and reveals the advice that he would give to his younger self. So without further ado, welcome to the Student Lawyer, Dan. It's wonderful to have you here with us today. You're very welcome. Um, Right, I'm just going to kick into it really because I've got a whole bunch of questions to ask you and I can't wait to um, get going. So I thought I would kick off the episode by asking you to please explain the reason or reasons you decided to become a tax lawyer. Oh, uh, my reasons are terrible. My my entire career is a model of how students should not start their career in law. I blundered into it. I didn't really know what I was doing. I made it through luck and not through talent. And nobody should try and emulate that. And that's true for how I chose corporate law. It's true for how I chose Clifford Chance. And it's true for tax. It was a badly thought through muddle, which by sheer luck had been landing on my feet and so yes nobody should emulate this so tax specifically tax i had no interest in tax no idea i wanted to be a tax lawyer if someone had told 18 year old me i was going to become a tax lawyer i would have been somewhere between confused and insulted so didn't expect it at all went to cliff a chance probably didn't even know they did tax, knew nothing about tax law, I had zero interest, did a seat in banking, it was great, I loved the work, I worked really hard, probably harder than at any other time in my life, 
one of the partners, in fact, my supervising partner, a chap called Rob Lee, who then became, years later, became head of the global banking practice. So a really serious guy, fantastic lawyer. He took me under his wing, had a great time. And then he suggested I might want to do a seat in tax. And I've no idea why, but I followed his recommendation and did a seat in tax. And it was a good recommendation. I really enjoyed it. And I liked the people. I liked the work. And I then spent quite a lot of time wondering whether to qualify into tax or banking and ended up deciding on tax. And that that was it, really. There was no, no great plan, no great strategy, just luck. Probably the one thing I would take from that, recommend to to students and new trainees is don't be as clueless as I was, but also don't start out thinking, yes, I want to be an X, where X is based upon what you've read, what you've seen, maybe a few days as an intern, because you won't really know until you're there. You certainly won't know what the people are like until you're there. So keep an open mind, see what you end up enjoying, because it may be something completely unexpected. Maybe if you're really unlucky, could be tax. See, I really like your journey into law and how you um, became a tax lawyer and ended up at CC, because I think that um, you say blundered into it. Would you say that that is the same kind of thing as falling into it? You didn't take such a a linear um, approach to deciding what you wanted to do and taking the right steps to do it, not thinking about anything else. You see, I think that when you're open minded like that, you take things on that you enjoy doing hopefully it's a little bit challenging as well to you know keep you going and pushing you and if you you know find law and it's and it's right for you I think that blundered into it is actually I think that's the best way to do it I don't know I think there's a difference between open-minded and just clueless and I fear I was more on the clueless side and in the end the outcome may may look the same but it it didn't feel the same right right I see the difference I see the difference Um, and you mentioned things about like working really hard and um, had a great supervisor and ended up you know doing tax and I'm going to come on to uh, what makes a great trainee and newly qualified solicitor a little bit later on uh, but as we are um, still talking about I suppose why I become a tax lawyer um, um, I was wondering if you could explain for our listeners who aren't quite so sure what the difference between a corporate tax solicitor and a private client tax solicitor is. So when I was in my 20s as a tax lawyer If I told people I was a tax lawyer, they would almost literally run away from me at parties. And my wife claims she'd been dating me for six months before she found out I was a tax lawyer. No no one was interested in tax law or tax lawyers. Then suddenly you hit your 30s and everyone wants to talk to you because they think that you can save them tax. And I couldn't. And the reason I couldn't, aside from not particularly wanting to, is that I was and am a corporate tax lawyer. I know about companies and how they're taxed. I know about banks and about governments, but I only know a bit about how individuals are taxed. I know enough to be dangerous, I know enough to identify the issues, but I'd be dumb, I'd be professionally negligent to advise on it, I'm a corporate tax law. There are people who, it's the other way around, they spend their time advising individuals on tax. And given the price of getting advice, most but not all of the time, those are going to be fairly wealthy individuals, and that's private client work. So it it is very different. Not only is it different, but the firms that do it are different. Back in the day, 
I'm talking a long time ago, 25, 30 years ago, Clifford Charles Allen and Overy would do private client work. Over time, as the firms got bigger, it became hard for them to really service individual private clients. So they've largely pulled out of that work. And the firms that do private client work are firms like Withers. And you don't see Magic Circle doing private client work anymore. So it's not only is it a choice of a type of work, but it's a choice of a type of firm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, what are the main roles and responsibilities of a corporate tax lawyer then? I can't really answer that question. It's a bit like saying what are the real roles and responsibilities of a of a lawyer. Yeah. Maybe one way yeah. to answer it is. I, I think a lot of people think that corporate tax lawyers spend their time dreaming up evil tax avoidance schemes for, 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 for clients. And they don't. Why, why don't they? One reason is that for essentially the whole of my career, tax avoidance schemes haven't worked and have been struck down by the courts. So if I did go to a client and say, I've got an amazing tax avoidance scheme that's going to save you millions of pounds, I'd be shockingly negligent and the client would probably laugh me out the room. So there's one reason you don't. The other reason you don't is that the types of client that the big firms advise tend to be very risk averse. There's, there's exceptions where you're advising, say, in the real estate space, you have small, smaller companies involved, not so risk adverse. But when you're advising large financial institutions and multinationals, they are risk adverse and they absolutely need tax advice because the whole thing is so complicated. They certainly don't want to pay more tax than they need to, but they don't want to take on tax risk. And normally as a lawyer, as a tax lawyer, your job is about tax risk that can be tax risk on a transaction they could be doing a piece of MA and they want to do the MA in a way which satisfies all of the billions of requirements they have to deal with they, they could be doing the MA across 12 different countries each of those is a different set of corporate laws regulatory laws pension laws employment laws environmental laws and tax laws you need to find a way to make the deal work given all those constraints and often the tax lawyer is the person structuring the deal who has to make it work within those constraints. So that's, that's one big thing tax lawyers do is structure deals, make them work. Another is dealing with tax risk, where you're not creating the tax structure, you're kind of dealing with it. So you're taking over a company, your client, therefore, is going to carry the can if there's something wrong in that company, be it tax or anything else, you want to make sure there isn't. And if there is, you want to make sure that the seller deals with that risk, not your clients. You're negotiating the way that tax risk is dealt with. And that's quite a large part of, of tax lawyers' work. What else do tax lawyers do? Tax lawyers do disputes. That can be tax litigation. Most tax disputes, I'm going to make up a number here, 99.9% .9 of tax disputes don't end up in litigation. They're, they're resolved through correspondence. And either HMRC concedes or you concede or you end up somewhere in the middle. Um, what else do tax lawyers do? Sometimes policy advice, that tends to be quite a small part because generally people don't pay for it, but it's important. And I'm sure I've missed something. Ad advice, structuring, policy advice, um, negotiating risk, um, disputes. Those are probably the main things. The, the part that you play in that as a junior lawyer is completely dependent on the team that you're in, what they're up to, the kind of the client, blah, blah, just as anything else. Tax lawyers are fundamentally lawyers. We're not accountants. The work that we do, the way that we do it is like lawyers, not like accountants. Again, thank you for explaining that so clearly.
For the past four years, I have been very lucky in the sense that I have had the shoulders of friends and family to sob on and unfortunately for them to vent at whilst I have been under pressure and stress from university deadlines and whilst going through the gruelling process of training contract applications and interviews. They have been my unofficial therapists and during tough times have reminded me that there is always light at the end of the tunnel. But it's not always possible to rely on a friend or family member to help you through difficult times, especially if they are not trained therapists. And sometimes speaking to somebody outside of your family or friendship circle is a better option anyway. If you're going through stressful times, looking to improve the quality of your life, vent or need somebody to remove the weight of the world from your shoulders, BetterHelp, the sponsor of today's podcast, may be right for you. BetterHelp is the largest therapy platform in the world and it changes the way people approach their mental health and helps them tackle life's challenges by providing accessible and affordable care. The therapists at BetterHelp are qualified to help you through everything from daily stresses to anxiety, relationships, depression, addictions, eating, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem and much more. After you sign up, BetterHelp will match you to a therapist who fits your objectives, preferences and the type of issues that you are dealing with. So whilst a friend or family member, aka an unofficial therapist, is great to speak to, therapists on BetterHelp include psychologists, family therapists, licensed clinical social workers and licensed professional counsellors. Visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off your first month. That's www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. I know that I'm looking forward to using BetterHelp to help me get through the SQE when I start it next year. Um, So it's not as it's not as kind of like simple as saying you're a tax lawyer and you do tax. It depends what team you're working in. You could be a tax lawyer that um, specialises in M&A deals and you were working kind of like very closely with the buyer or seller. Um, you could work closely with a an employment team and you are, you know, just working on employment issues and you use your tax skills for that department. You're really specialised um, in these different practice areas. I mean, that's definitely a good way to look at it, that Mm -hmm. some of the work tax people in law firms do is pure tax advice or pure disputes, but the rest of it is linked to something else. So it could be M&A, could be financing, could could be a non-tax dispute. Sometimes tax lawyers are specialised in a particular kind of thing. So M&A, particularly so with, with the American firms, if you're a tax person at an American firm, you may spend all of your time on M and A deals, doing the tax and M and A deals. In most other firms, tax people tend to be not that specialised. Certainly, in in my firm, in Clifford Chance, we were try quite careful. The junior guy should spend, say, um, a year doing this kind of tax, a year doing that kind of tax. They ended up more more well rounded, but it it, it very much depends. Yeah. And then your there's of course lots of different technical areas of tax and those technical areas of tax could come up in just about just about any point they could come up in an M&A deal they could come up in a financing they could come up in a standalone piece of advice and as you get more senior you will tend to specialize in a particular technical area more than others right you'll you'll have a okay knowledge across a much wider area right thank you for explaining that i mean at the beginning of this question and you said God, that's like asking what the responsibilities of a lawyer are. I mean, 
it's difficult, I think, for student lawyers to really understand what goes on behind the closed doors of a law firm. Like it's difficult and it's difficult to get experience. It's difficult to actually know what the realities of the job are. And I think that um, a practice like tax as well is especially kind of um, difficult to get your head wrapped around because, I mean, it's just it's so broad as well. So thank you ever so much for explaining that. I think that the um, listeners will be um, uh, be very helpful to know. But, but you're right. It is really hard. I, as I said, I, I had zero clue. But yeah. even today, when you've got the Internet, you've got internships, it's still really hard to understand what people really do day to day, not least because the internships are um, is stage managed a bit harsh. It's a bit harsh, but it's probably kind of true. Your internship is stage managed. You're, you're not seeing the, the, the real day-to-day experience is also difficult because the day-to-day experience can vary so wildly i could have one week where i happen to spend the entire week uh in in-depth legal research for a particular point in a dispute i could spend another week spending my whole time loudly negotiating with an obnoxious um counterpart and if you happen to sit with me during one of those weeks you'd have an utterly misleading picture of, of what my role was like so yes as a student understanding what lawyers do be it any kind of lawyer really is super hard yeah and how do you like apart from doing these internships I know there's lots of virtual internships now how do you advise aspiring lawyers to um kind of like immerse themselves in whatever way to get this kind of experience and know if they want to do it I think what I do so yeah do do the internships because the law firm's going to require you to um There's only one important thing you need to get out of them, which is people. And um, do the internships, meet some people, grab the people one to one, and speak to them, and try and get by talking to them an understanding of what it's really like. Don't just believe one person because yeah, one person could have a brilliant time or a terrible time because just because of their personality and luck of the draw. But it's only by speaking to people who are maybe one or two years ahead of you that you'll get a real idea of what it's like. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that. We've touched on this a little bit, but what are the realities of the job? Because you met, you've mentioned a couple of times when you've told people that you're a tax lawyer, they run a mile. And I am sure I've heard one or two people, you know, talk about tax as being not, I suppose, sexy, if you want to label it like that. But um, yeah, if you could tell me what the realities of the job are, I would be just, I would love to know. The reality of the job of a tax lawyer, um, well, it's, it's very re- varied. I, mean, I I decided I loved tax, and I'm not ashamed to say so, because I was always fascinated by business, by economics, by politics, and by the law. And tax is where all four of those coincide, often very unhappily. And it's the interaction between the commercial objectives and the law and the politics, which, which and understanding it, which makes someone a good tax lawyer. So people who think tax law is boring may just not, it may not be right for them. It may be a yeah. disaster and boring for them. I think you you need to have a an interest in law, not just law as a way of doing things, but, but you need to have an interest in law on a pure sense. By contrast, you could be an extremely successful banking lawyer without having a deep and abiding fascination in the intricacies of law for its own sake. But yeah. to be a good texter, I think you, you really need that. 
But you can't just have that. 30 years ago, you could be an amazing technical tax lawyer with zero social skills. You'd essentially be locked in an ivory tower. Problems would be thrown at you. You'd throw out solutions. No one would ever let you meet a client. What a disaster. Um, But you could still be a successful tax lawyer. These days, you can't really become a successful tax lawyer without having at least some ability to speak human. So, So you do need to combine those. Right, I see you need to be a well-rounded person that's commercially aware and has got an interest in law. You know, it has to really come from, you know, the passion, if you like. Am yes. I right saying that? Yeah. Yes. See, um, I um I know that I know I'm so happy that I have um found a profession that I'm very confident that I want to um I want to be in for you know the rest of my working years um and I have a great interest in helping businesses succeed so I am excited to know whether that is in more of a kind of like mergers and acquisitions um sphere or restructuring and insolvency where I'm helping like maybe distressed businesses um so yeah I I can see that you have to have a real interest for something as well as just the law because I think that's what makes it fun and you you know you say that you find tax fun and um that's why I think that I'm going to be more of an M&A or restructuring and insolvency Mm. kind of girl does that make sense to you yeah sure definitely I mean the Solving problems is absolutely a thing and helping clients is absolutely a thing. And some, there are so many different skills that lawyers can have and, and need, but you, you never have and can't have all of them in the same person. A successful team needs lots of different people with, with, with different different skills. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what is the biggest myth about being a corporate tax lawyer? Well, the biggest myth is that tax lawyers are there to avoid tax for their clients. And occasionally I sit down, I start writing a what tax lawyers really do piece. And then I think it just looks like self-justification. It looks like I'm just defensive about this. And it's very, it's a bit self-obsessive. So so I end up not writing it. And I probably probably will never write that piece. But it's nevertheless true that what tax rates are really doing day to day is making sure their clients pay the right amount of tax, which sounds flip, but there's only so many HMRC inspectors. There's a huge amount of very complicated tax law. Who is it that makes sure that businesses do in fact pay the right amount of tax and don't ignore tax law? And the answer is that tax advisors, lawyers, accountants, others, and I mean, it's true across other areas of law too. It's true across employment law, environmental law. The the rule of law relies upon clients being correctly guided by their lawyers. And fundamentally, that that in the end is what tax lawyers do. And it's an important role. And it's a role that's not as appreciated as it probably could be. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like with the whole tax avoidance schemes, it's. I just think it's a way of acting in your client's best interest in advising them how to pay the right, you know, just advising them how to pay the least amount of tax, but still doing it legally. Well, the least amount of tax is That's normally not in the client's interest. That's just acting in the best interest of the client, so, isn't it? 
So, you know, if, if, if a company came to me and said, oh, I, I want to pay mathematically the least <laughs> amount of tax. OK, so one way to do it is you could radically change what the client does. Instead of being a widget making business, they could be a real estate business because then you could get on leverage and pay less tax. But that would have no commercial. And also that would be utterly uncommercial. Another would be to create some very elaborate scheme which said oh, loophole here, um, arbitrage here. Look, I found a way to magically get through all these rules and you pay way less tax. But um there's almost no chance anything like that, like that would work before the courts. So a lawyer who proposes that is not doing law at all. Or I don't know really what they're doing is some kind of mis-selling. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, so if the first lawyer has no commercial awareness, the second lawyer has no awareness of the law. Right. So, um, no, I, I don't think that's a realistic scenario. Now, of course, a client may say, I'm looking to do this M&A, and... I know the tax here is really complicated and I don't want to end up paying um, random weird taxes on what should be a straightforward transaction. And that's absolutely what tax lawyers do. Almost all the clients I ever had are very happy to pay tax at the corporate corporation tax rate on their profit. They expect it. What they don't expect to happen is have some weird tax result because of um, US tax doing this, French tax doing that, UK tax doing that. And suddenly this transaction that should result in no additional tax has a huge upfront tax here. But that, that can quite easily happen, given the complexities of international tax. Right. So... Um, I guess you could say you're avoiding that appalling result. You are avoiding tax, but that's not really what tax avoidance is. There, there, there are some people who we would technically call idiots who will claim that an ISA say is tax avoidance. Of course, an ISA isn't tax avoidance. An ISA, yes, um, you are avoiding tax on the savings that are in an ISA, but tax avoidance means more than just not paying the full amount of tax you could pay. Tax avoidance means doing something which is an, exploiting a loophole or an unintended result or going against the spirit of the rules to do something that realistically you shouldn't be able to do yes okay so if you're going against the spirit of the rules bending bending the rules if you like jumping through those loopholes if it goes to court the courts are just going to say ah, uh, 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 this is avoiding yeah, you're, almost is, certainly you're not lose. playing fair like we're not like this yeah this, not the courts happen. never put it like that, but that is pretty much what they do. And yeah. uh, I think in the last 25 years, I can think of one case where there was a tax avoidance scheme where the client won. Um, one case, um, hang on, which was it? Um, the ships, it was, it was the it was a case called ships um, where a tax avoidance scheme did, did succeed. And that, that was almost 20 years ago now. Um, Ships two was it? God, I should be able to remember. How embarrassing! I cannot. Your 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 listeners probably better at this than I am. I think it was the ships two the ships two scheme, and, and that's it. So so your odds are really bad. Um, and a tax lawyer who enables their clients to enter into tax avoidance schemes is just a bad tax lawyer. Questions of morality are, are a less important question than the fact they're just a bad lawyer. So if this ships two scheme, um, the courts said okay. Did that not set a precedent for other things? Why is this not carried on happening? Well, um, so, so, so the law the law had been changed. It was a scheme in 2009. It involved something around secondhand life policies, a very technical area of the law, where some advisor, I can't remember who, had found what they thought was a loophole. It turned out the loophole was real. But by the time it came to court, the loophole had already been closed. Okay, fine. Um, I actually think if that case came today, 
the courts would find it differently. Um, and that's even without all the new anti-avoidance that's been created since then. Um, sure. But yeah, it, the loophole was closed before it was even revealed to exist. Good to know. Thank you. Sure. So don't, don't do tax avoidance, kids. Is don't the, do tax is, avoidance. Is the moral. We're going to come back on to more tax avoidance um, questions later. But I was wondering if you could uh, talk to us now about um, or advise on how future commercial and corporate trainee solicitors, well, what advice would you give to future commercial and corporate trainee solicitors thinking about perhaps doing a a seat in tax? What are the desirable skill sets of a tax lawyer? First thing I'd say is do do it after you've done some kind of mainstream seats. So if you're just starting a law firm, there's so much to get on top of in terms of just how law firms work, how lawyers work, how transactions work. Um, to do that at the same time as you're trying to get on top of what tax is, is just too hard. So I, I, I really wouldn't recommend starting out doing it. What, 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 what skills do you need? Yeah, you need to be you clearly need to be good at legal research because a lot of tax training time is spent doing legal research. Um, I mean, a lot of tax partner time is spent doing legal research. As a trainee in some other groups, you'll get fairly easy legal research. But if you're given legal research in tax, it's one of two things. The first thing is they're just testing you. They know the answer, but they're testing you. And I admit to occasionally having done that. Sorry, trainees, if I, if I didn't tell you that at the time. The, the the second thing is that you're being asked to look into a point because the other lawyers and partners don't know the answer. And these are people who've been doing tax for 20 years, maybe 30 years. If they don't know the answer, it's really, really difficult. So, um, yeah, the research you're getting is going to be really hard. Quite often there won't be an answer. Um, so, yes, get, get, get used to it. And you have to like that or you probably won't like tax. The other top thing with pretty much all tax work be it research or drafting or anything else is do not finish it check it and then consider it done unless you're under some intolerable time pressure and um, do it stop sleep on it talk to people go back to it i i quite often change my mind in a single point seven times between the initial draft and, and the final version thank you so much for sharing that that is just invaluable advice you've given there and um tips i think um, so what does make a great newly qualified solicitor and trainee? I, I don't think there's an answer. The, 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 there, are, the, the, there are lots of ways to be, to be a great lawyer and lots of ways to be a bad lawyer. It's easier to say that the, the ways to make a bad lawyer than it is yeah, the ways to make sure. a good lawyer because you, you you could have a, a studious, a great lawyer who's studious, a great lawyer who's brilliant at networking, a lawyer who who reads and absorbs stuff really quickly, a lawyer who just sees points immediately, um, you know, a lawyer who's got a, a, a real commercial sense, and a lawyer who clicks with clients. So many types of lawyers. Uh, the I, I think it's a bad idea a fallacy to think you can identify a one way to succeed it's also quite dangerous because then a student or a lawyer could, yeah i'm just this doesn't get out for me i'm not that person i'm not like that guy and you, you you can be successful without being like that guy or that girl you there are going to be lots of different ways of being successful so it's good to have a unique selling point than i, I got from that and it's good to you know be different and stand out for all good reasons What makes a not so great needed qualified or well, let's go with trainee solicitor um not not paying attention not not, not listening 
thinking you know the answer better than someone who's been doing it for 20 years. God, we had a we had a, we had a training once and, and did a first draft, which was actually okay. And the partner marked mark, marked it up and said, um, yeah, a few 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 mistakes here. And the client and the trainee then sent their original version out to the client and said to the partner they disagreed with the partner's comments. Oh my goodness, what happened? Trainee did not qualify into the firm and actually became famous subsequently, but I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to no. say anymore. Oh my god, that takes some balls or stupidity. Total lack of self-awareness. Yeah. Mm. But it's kind of hard. From an ego point of view, it's quite hard to admit that you know nothing. And it can go two ways. One way you can say, Oh God, I know nothing. I'm so useless at this. I, I can't be doing this. It's too hard. And that's a terrible mistake because everyone has to start not knowing the area. The other equally bad mistake, maybe worse mistake, is like, oh yeah, yeah, I I've been looking at this for two days. I, I, I really understand this when when, when you just don't. So actually, here, here's an answer to your earlier question. The uh, absolutely vital lawyer skill, which all successful lawyers have to have, is to know when they really know the answer and when they don't. The dangerous lawyer isn't the one who doesn't know the answer. The dangerous lawyer is the one who doesn't know the answer but thinks they do. So for, for me, there's areas of law where I am actually, it's not true anymore. I, I was one of the leading experts. So I'd be really confident that I can advise in this area, which is about that thick, for, for those listening, I'm holding my fingers really not very far apart. That's the area where I'm an expert and I can absolutely answer with confidence here. Slightly wider area where I'm an expert, but I need to spend a lot of time thinking about it. A wider area where I have a decent knowledge, but I'm not one of the key experts and I need to speak to someone who is, I spend a lot of time thinking about it first. There's an area beyond that where um, I have no clue. And if I spent time looking at it and researching it, I'd be wasting my time or be shockingly negligent. So I must immediately find someone else who can do this work and not even try and do it myself. And making sure you know which of those areas you're in is of critical importance. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are the current corporate tax issues that aspiring commercial solicitors should be aware of ahead of their vacation scheme or training contract interviews at this point i wouldn't i i probably wouldn't think of it like that i think no. the, the things to be aware of is, is the current commercial environment so what are the current what are the current factors which are driving commercial world so for example right now there will probably be high interest rates High inflation, supply chain difficulties, um, problems hiring, um, stock market, um, extreme variability, um, Russia, um, China, those sort of issues. And there'll be some clients who are unaffected by all of them, although probably not many. There'll be other clients for whom... Um, interest rates are the biggest issue or Russia is the biggest issue but having an awareness of the commercial landscape mm. is probably the best thing to do so I, I would read the FT I would read the Economist I would read God um there's a guy called Matt Levine who is a columnist for Bloomberg and he was an in-house lawyer at Goldman who's now as a journalist and he writes about corporate finance the corporate world and the law totally from an American perspective, but he writes so well and is so entertaining. It is a brilliant way to learn and to get commercial and legal awareness. So I would say that anyone who wants to succeed in law, going to oversell him, but I'll do it anyway, should, should subscribe. It's free to, to Matt Levine's column. He is brilliant. 
Okay. I, I am a Matt Levine fanboy. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Ooh. I'll put links in the show note to... Yeah, uh, put, put, put links. It's, a, it's the greatest thing any, anyone could do to, to, to get an understanding of... Um, of how to think commercially, how to think like a lawyer, and issues in corporate finance. Okay. If there was a British Matt Levine, that would be the greatest thing ever. But, but <laughs> so sadly, there is not. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you very much. For a French Matt Levine. Yeah. That, that, that'd be, yeah. Um, but uh, there is only one Matt Levine. There is only one. <laughs> um, so I have read that after Uber was challenged by the HMRC in 2022 for not charging VAT on fares, Uber decided to use the tour operator's margin scheme to pay a low effective rate of VAT instead of charging 20% VAT on its fares. Now, HMRC is challenging Uber's use of this tax scheme. So if I have got my facts correct there, Dan, do tell me if I haven't. Um, I was wondering if, actually no, going back just a little bit, backtracking, so I understand that most cab companies, which you could call Uber, um, and black cabs do not pay VAT. So why is the HMRC so irate about Uber nodding? So if you could just explain to our listeners and me. So this ends up being fiendishly complicated, but the story starts with a simple big problem around VAT in the UK. There is a threshold at which businesses have to start charging VAT. And in most of the world, most of Europe, that threshold is at a fairly low level, so about 20 or 30,000 pounds. In the UK, it's at 85,000 pounds. So if you're a self-employed driver, be it a black cab or a private hire, you likely earn less than 85,000 pounds. You don't need to charge VAT easy. If a business operated a fleet of taxis, its turnover will be more than £85,000, and they will need to charge VAT. Now, that's a stupid result, because it means that a small business has a 20% cost advantage over a large business. And if small businesses are less efficient, the economy as a whole benefits from more large businesses. So it's, it's what an economist would call a distortion. The tax system is pushing people to have a small business rather than a large business. And that is a bad thing. Right. And certainly, yeah, as a, a, a former Londoner, I very much benefited from having a way to centrally call a taxi when I need one, rather than standing kind of waving my hand like an idiot to try to find one. So um, VAT shouldn't be doing that, but it does. How did Uber try and deal with that? Because Uber clearly was a big firm. Well, they said, actually, you know, all these taxi drivers, they, they have their own business and they earn less than £85,000. All we are doing is we, we're just their agent. We're just on their behalf connecting them with, with consumers, with people who, who want to have, have a cab. And Uber persisted with that for a long time. And eventually it was clear that it was not sustainable. The way that Uber's business worked and the way the rules around taxes worked means that Uber was not just an agent. Uber was a principal. Uber was buying in the services of these taxi drivers and then selling a service to, 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 to customers. Okay. And, right. and when that happened, a lot of people thought that meant inevitably Uber would have to charge 20% VAT. Mm. But they didn't. There is something complicated and obscure, which um, I never came across in practice because it's very specialised, called the tour operator's margin scheme. 
And that's a scheme that was designed for travel agents who would be constructing a package holiday and selling it to punters out of lots of different elements. You know, a coach here, a flight there, one hotel here, another hotel there, a boat ride here. Um, all these little inputs were coming together and then being sold as one package holiday. And back in the day when the internet didn't exist and VAT systems weren't so coordinated, a travel agent was like, gosh, the VAT on this is a nightmare. How am I going to deal with all the VAT in all these different countries where I'm buying stuff from? It's impossible. Um, so this tour operator's margin scheme was created, which says to a travel agent, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Instead of charging VAT in the normal way, just pay 20% VAT on your profit. So you're buying in all of these little bits for, say, £1,000. You're selling them to a client for £1,100. So you're just going to pay VAT on the 100 of profit. You're going to pay VAT of 20. Uber used and applied that same scheme to their cars. They say, we're buying in, all right, not flights, not hotels, but we're buying in cars. We're buying in um, tax journeys from taxi drivers, and then we're selling them. And we should pay VAT only on our profit. But as it happens, Uber's profit is absolutely tiny until very recently. They lost amazing amounts of money, billions and billions and billions. Now they make a teeny, tiny, tiny profit. Um, and that's not their PVAT. And that's what they were doing. HMRC is challenging that exactly on what basis. We don't know. Um, it's a very difficult area, so I'd hesitate to say what the outcome will be. But it's a mess. Tax shouldn't work like this. And it's uh, and the original sin that's causing the mess is the fact that we have this stupidity of a very high VAT threshold, which punishes businesses for growing past £85,000. Yeah. And that means a lot of effort is spent by a lot of people keeping their business below £85,000 artificially and in avoiding VAT. And that's what, what Uber was doing. I, I don't I, I don't blame the player, I blame the game. And right. the answer is to change the game. That's a very long answer. I'm sorry. It's sounds like a just a very complex issue that you know is just totally it would be interesting to see what happens with this yeah, i'd love to be if i was doing practice I'd, I'd love to be on either side of that dispute there's a fa fascinating uh, a fascinating di di dispute to be running and i'm deeply envious of anyone listening to this who goes on to work for a firm that's handling the dispute mm -hmm. i know you said it's difficult to know who will win but if you had to if you had to bet on it now no, 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 no. Uh, Tom's is in. Remember, I said the different the different zones. Tom's is in an area where 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 I wouldn't even come close to trying to advise. I've been negligent even thinking about it. I had to speak to a bunch of people. I, I wrote a piece on this, um, which doesn't really go into the technicalities, but I still spent a couple of days speaking to people who are expert in it before I could do that. Um, right. And they weren't sure who would win. So I would be a total idiot for, for me to make a guess as to who would win. Particularly, we don't know the facts. We don't. Yeah. We don't really know what the dispute's about. Right. Indeed. I will put a link to the article that you wrote about this in the show notes as well. So oh, thank you. Yes, it will plugs for taxpolicy.org.uk. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great read. Um, so, you know, you've mentioned um, SHIP2, the tax avoidance scheme. Yes, the one that the, the taxpayer won. Yes. The one that the taxpayer won. What is the most creative use of a tax avoidance scheme that you have seen? Doesn't need to be held up or not held. Oh, they've all been rubbish in the last twenty-five years. Um, yeah, I mean, they've all been rubbish. I mean, okay, I'll, I'll tell you about tax I've avoided. Tell you about tax I've avoided. Yes, so, um, post-financial crisis, there were a lot of businesses with way too much debt 
that um, so a not uncommon scenario would be you have a business and it has a billion pounds of debt. The business is only worth 500 million quid. And if that plays out, then the business will go bust and the banks will certainly lose their billion of debt. And also thousands of people will lose their jobs. You know, contractors, subcontractors will lose money. Uh, there is there is no good outcome from that business going bust. And unlike previous recessions, the banks were keenly aware of that and really didn't want that to be the outcome. So what they would be willing to do, they would be willing to forgive some of the debt. So in this scenario, say, company worth 500 million, but debt of a billion, banks would say, Jesus, we, we, do, we don't want it is, but we, we will forgive, we'll release um, six or 700 million of debt so that the, the company is right again and, it, and it's solvent. And the banks would, after much negotiation, be willing to do that. They'd probably take some, they'd take some upside in the event that things ended happily ever after in, in future years, but they'd release a whole bunch of debt. But if you did that under the law at the time, there'd be a massive tax hit in the company okay. because releasing debt is profit. If you release um, 600 million quid, there'll be tax on that at uh, to 25%. So you would have 150 million quid of tax to be paid by this company that was almost bust. Oh, God. So releasing the debt would make the company bust. So what do you do? And the answer was, we kind of did tax avoidance. We would construct elaborate structures using, using rules that were there, but never contemplated this scenario, in order to enable the debt to be eliminated without tax. Now, is that really tax avoidance? In a sense, no. Because if we didn't do that, the company would go bust and no tax would be paid. And if we did nothing and the debt was released anyway, there'd be a huge tax bill, which the company couldn't pay, and the company would go bust and the, the tax wouldn't be paid. So um, we were not avoiding tax that would ever actually be paid, but we were technically avoiding tax that technically, um, theoretically, in another universe would be paid. We did that in very complicated ways. And often that was cleared by HMRC because they thought it was technically right. And they also thought that ultimately it's in accordance with the spirit of the rules. But that was done by me and others, and many businesses were saved as a result. So it, it's tax avoidance, if you want to call it that, that I'm that I'm very proud of. For the greater good. Uh, for, for for all the good that there was a there was literally no downside of doing that. No one lost out, but but businesses were saved. So people who think that they can always identify tax avoidance and always stop tax avoidance need to realise that in in the real world. Um, whether something is tax avoidance or not is highly situational or often quite political mm. and um, things don't always work out as you expect. Good to know. Thank you. Um, so, Dan, what do you enjoy most about being a tax lawyer? I'm not sure if I'm still a, ta- I, I'm still a tax lawyer, but I, I'm, I'm, not, lawyer. I'm not the kind of tax lawyer that, that, that most tax lawyers are. What did I enjoy most when I was a tax lawyer in commercial practice? I'll answer that instead. I just liked solving problems. A client comes to you with a big problem. Um, maybe they've got into a mess with HMRC by accident. Maybe they've bought a company, which it turns out did tax fraud. Um, so, so someone comes to you with a problem, and they think it's a serious problem, and it's going to be very hard to solve. And you find an unexpectedly easy solution, and that's the best thing about being a tax lawyer. Excellent, thank you. And um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, I think I probably suffered from imposter syndrome, thinking I was in the wrong place, I, um, had the wrong background, didn't understand enough. Um, n- none of which was true, and I, I should just pull myself together and and got on with it. Don't, don't worry so much. 
Don't worry so much. Thank you. I think that's such an important message to have. I think that there is a lot of pressure on um, uh, people maybe starting their training contracts and newly qualified solicitors. But now that I'm saying it out loud, I guess there's a lot of pressure on all people in the legal profession. And whether or not imposter syndrome goes away, I think that just trying to come back to the like headspace that you know, as long as you are doing your best, you know, and really putting 100% effort into it, then everything's going to be okay. And you do deserve to be there if you're putting in the effort and working with your team. Like, Except, remember that that, that, that trainee who ignored the partner's comments because they thought they knew better than the partner. Uh, he didn't suffer from, from, from imposter syndrome. <laughs> he would have been a lot better off if he did. So imposter syndrome may not be all, all, all bad. You can definitely go wrong on either on either side of this. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, arrogance is a bad failing uh, as a trainee, as a lawyer, as a, as a partner, as probably worse than imposter syndrome. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you very much for for opening up the world of tax to the student lawyers um, and for teaching us, you know, not to be arrogant in life. I think that's a very important message to have. Um, thank you for joining us on the student lawyer podcast i've had such a fun time you know just chatting to you you know learning about tax learning about the things that you have done in your career um and yeah i'm looking forward to uh, the next um release of your newsletter because that's always a fun read um so yeah thank you very much for joining us thank you so much And thank you to everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Student Lawyer Podcast. And we will see you back again here next time. To hear more of the Student Lawyers Podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. Don't forget that if you're looking for a way to remove the weight of the world from your shoulders, the therapists at BetterHelp are qualified to help you through your daily stresses. Just visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month.